one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. And if you think about the fact that no single human being can be everything a president needs to be, it is too much for any one person. So what we really have to think about is what do we need in a president right now? What are the qualifications or skills of a president that we want to prioritize here today in 2020 after four years of Donald Trump? This is Sarah. This is Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Welcome, everyone. We are so excited to be joining you from Cleveland, Ohio. We are here for a speaking engagement. We just left Michigan, the third stop on our Nuance Nation tour. We had such a fantastic time in Michigan with Representative Haley Stevens. All the attendees were fantastic, and our team on the ground really outdid themselves. They did. There were pumpkins on the table the pumpkins. there. It was over the top. It was so wonderful. It was so good. We hope to see more of you in Louisville. Guess what? We were able to add more tickets in Louisville because so Mm -hmm. many of you are excited to see our conversation with Amy McGrath. Mm -hmm. So get those. Also, we have tickets available for our stops in Washington, D.C. with Susan Page, veteran journalist of USA Today, and MJ Heger, candidate for the United States Senate in Texas. We're so excited. So get those tickets. If you went to Louisville and you were sad and you you saw that it was sold out, no longer. We'll put the link in the show notes for the tickets for the Louisville show. Now let's dive in because we have all the news. Everything happened over the weekend. Everything happened. Every single thing. we have to cover a debate still. So we're going to do that in the main segment. But first, we're going to catch up on all the things that happened. I have to tell you, I told Beth, I was like, man, are we going to even have time for the debates? And she was like, we have to. I rewatched all three hours of it. I did. I watched the whole thing two times. So over my dead body, are we skipping (laughs) debate analysis? But we did have some really major events. First and foremost, as you have probably heard by this point, there was an attack on a Saudi Aramco facility, one of the Saudi Aramco facility, as well as a bordering oil field on Saturday. Immediately, Yemeni's Houthi rebels took responsibility for the attack, which was perpetuated mainly by drones and a few missiles. But the United States, particularly the Trump administration and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, are not buying it. They do not think that the Yemenis are responsible and are blaming Iran. So let's go over a little bit what Saudi Aramco is. It is a national 
Petroleum and Gas Company. It's, according to Bloomberg News, the most profitable company in the world. It has the world's second largest crude oil reserves, and it's worth over a trillion dollars. It estimates that it's worth a lot more than one trillion dollars, but there's some dispute about how much it's worth. It is owned by the Saudi government, but Crown Prince Mohammed, as part of his agenda to overall bring modernization and diversification to the Saudi economy, is going to sell part of it in an IPO. And that's supposed to happen later this fall. So the timing of this is economic significant, not only because of its impact on the world's oil supply, but also because of that IPO coming. And the Saudi government now is racing to say, like, it's okay, we're prepared for terrorist threats, we can handle things like this, we have enough reserves. Hold off other OPEC countries, don't Mm -hmm. open your supplies more, because they know that once countries like Russia and Iraq start selling more of their oil, you can't really put that back in the box. And Saudi Arabia really wants to maintain its position in the world's oil markets. So this was half of the kingdom's output and almost 5% of the global oil supply. When something happens in the Middle East, I always go to Al Jazeera because the way that they report, it's like the air they breathe and the, the water they swim in is different than ours. And so there's perspectives that we miss because we don't understand the environment, the history, the perspective of people who live in that area of the world. And I think it is difficult for us to understand Aramco. I think it can feel like, oh, this is Saudi Arabia's Exxon. No false. It's like if the United States ran Exxon. I saw a quote in a Al Jazeera article, and it said, Saudi Aramco is not an ordinary company. It is a company which runs the country. So it's really hard to overstate that this is not separate from Saudi Arabia. This company is Saudi Arabia. And so this attack, if you are Saudi Arabian, seems like an attack on your country. And because it is so tied up in not only the crown prince's desires to modernize their economy through the privatization of Aramco, but also introducing all this other investment into the country, an attack which can be seen as you were not able to secure this major source of your economy is a really big deal. Not to mention that, you know, whether or not the Yemenis Houthi rebels were responsible for this, this is going to have a huge impact on the war in Yemen. I think up until this point, the narrative has been that, you know, this humanitarian crisis is based on Saudi Arabia behaving unethically in the region. Well, now, if you're Saudi Arabia, you have justification for whatever you want to do in Yemen, for however you want to intercede in that region. It gives them a leg to stand on, right? And if it is, in fact, not the Yemenis Houthi rebels, analysts are saying that the scenario is unlikely because, you know, the Yemenis rebels have used drones in the past. I saw a report that said you could build one of these drones for about ten to $15,000. But the drone that was used in this attack has not been seen on that side of the Yemeni civil war. In addition, it's a really long way from where the fighting has been taking place in Yemen. It's much more likely that these drones were launched from either Iran or Iraq. And so now, if Iran was a player in this, now what's going to happen with the Iran nuclear deal? You know, both sides were at an impasse. We thought maybe there was an opening because John Bolton had left the scene. But now we have Donald Trump tweeting that we're locked and loaded as soon as we get affirmation about who was involved in this. Locked and loaded seems to be not a particularly helpful phrase to Does use. Does it seem diplomatic to you? In the midst of all of the uncertainty in the Middle East. So we talked last week about the bombing of an, an island in the middle of Iraq where ISIS was gaining a stronghold. And at that time, we talked about how Iran is really on this propaganda campaign in Iraq against the United States and Israel. We've known for a long time that the war in Yemen is really a proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran with the United States government really involved with Saudi Arabia in that war. And so the pressure just keeps ratcheting up here. And I think caution is in order. I've seen some military experts talking about how, yes, it looks more likely to have come from a particular angle, but that doesn't mean much. Mm -hmm. And we shouldn't read too much into anything that we know immediately. And it's pretty irresponsible to come out of the gate swinging at Iran over this when we just don't know yet. Well, and again, reporting from Al Jazeera points out that This is not the way that Iran usually behaves in the region. It is a proxy war in Yemen because that's usually how it works. I want plausible deniability if I'm Iran. I want to, you know, poke at these people with disproportionate power to me through third party groups. I'm not going to do something as 
outrageous or obvious as bombing Aramco if I'm Iran based on Iran's previous action. Now, you can make an argument that they are in an extreme position because of the extreme sanctions against the country right now, maybe, but caution is still in order. I totally agree. We have the UN General Assembly coming up in one week. President Macron of France was already planning on extending credit to Iran in an effort to move the new deal between the United States and Iran forward. The European nations are still participating in the Iran nuclear deal. So we'll see. We'll see. Secretary Pompeo has said that the president would be willing to meet during the General Assembly with Iran's president. Then President Trump tweeted that he was not willing to meet without any preconditions. And then Iran's media is saying that their president has taken a meeting off the table Mm -hmm. during the General Assembly. So we have a lot of immaturity, I would say, by all the actors involved here leading into what could be a really important opportunity for the world to come together around this region. And so we will keep an eye on this. I did want to point out, though, you know, it's not that I think Iran didn't do this. I just don't Mm -hmm. think we should come out saying that they did. Military experts are saying that this was likely a governmental actor Mm -hmm. because the sophistication of the attack, attack, they hit 19 targets. And they they said it's just unlikely that a non-state actor could pull something like this off. Right. So we also have developments in the ongoing legal case against Purdue Pharma for their role in the opiate epidemic. So we have Purdue Pharma filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, which is a big deal. We also have some reporting that the Sackler family members who own Purdue Pharma were trying to wire money to Sweden in an attempt to escape the $3 billion payout that has been negotiated. You know, there's so many states attorney general at the table with this deal The reporting can get confusing because some people are ready to move forward with this deal. Some people want more from the Sackler family, more from Purdue Pharma. But I feel like the Chapter 11 bankruptcy filing is still a really big deal and shows that there will be hopefully some responsibility coming from this company for their role. Although part of the deal is them refusing to claim any responsibility, which is lovely. I know that hearing a company like this has filed for bankruptcy just provokes a reaction of of being enraged, you know, on the public's part. And I totally understand that. I do want to say there are protections in that Chapter 11 process for creditors that are important. Mm -hmm. There's oversight that will prevent the family from shenanigans. There is an assurance that a court is going to look at how money is paid out and the order that it's paid out. And so I actually think this development might be a good thing for people who are waiting for money. I hope that the family's private wealth is a part of the settlement, though. I think that's really important. I think the idea that the even protectors for creditors, I mean, they took massive payouts over the course of this, the last decades as they built this wealth really, really from Oxycontin. And so they should be held responsible and they should lose some of their wealth. They're one of the richest families in the world. To walk away from this and remain the richest family and one of the richest families in the world is not justice to me. There are tough calls on that to be made coming down the pike because in order to do that, you would have to pierce the corporate veil, right, which would involve litigation. So you would have to prove in court that the Sackler family's private wealth is on the table, even though there was a layer of corporate structure between them and the company. And that's a lot of litigation, which which costs a lot of money. And that's money that comes out of the estate that's payable to other people. So The negotiations around this will probably go on for a long time. We're probably in for years of litigation over this. But you know what? We probably should be. Mm -hmm. And the public will learn a lot in that process. The other big news story this weekend. Everybody take a deep breath. We're going to talk about Brett Kavanaugh some more. I don't want to. I'm sorry. It's important. Uh, (laughs) Robin Pogrobin and Kate Kelly have who two New York Times reporters have written a book and there was an adaptation of the a section of the book in the New York Times. Interestingly, it was printed in the opinion section, which I thought was kind of an interesting choice. It outlines in more detail an accusation that we heard about during the confirmation hearings regarding Deborah Ramirez that Justice Kavanaugh shoved his penis at her when he was a classmate at Yale. She is as well. We also heard from in this in this article a new classmate, Max Steyer, who said he saw Mr. Kavanaugh with his pants down at a different drunken party during their time at Yale, and that he also pushed his penis into the hand of a female student. He reported this to the FBI, but the FBI did not investigate. Now, the FBI is not commenting on this. You have several presidential nominees calling for Brett Kavanaugh's impeachment. As the book hits the shelves and we learn in more detail, you know, 
I don't think impeachment is likely, but I think he perjured himself and he should be held responsible for that somehow. Because to say like, you know, one of the things he said in the, in the hearing was, well, if I had done this to Deborah Ramirez, it would have been the talk of the campus and what these reporters are showing. In fact, it was. And they have all these people that remember hearing about it at the time. The way he portrayed himself and denied all the stuff during his college time, which is we are learning more and more evidence of, is, is likely. It's just it's so... It's so frustrating, and it does such damage to the court. I can't imagine he's pretty popular among the other justices right now. My feelings about Brett Kavanaugh are well documented. Mm-hmm. If you were not with us during that time period, you can go to our episode guide and hear everything we had to say about it as it was unfolding. That said, I'm concerned about adaptation of a book in the opinion section of the mm-hmm. New York Times prompting public officials talking about impeachment of a Supreme Court justice who was confirmed not that long ago. It's not that I think he should not suffer consequence. I think he did perjure himself, most likely. And I think that hearing was outrageous. And I cannot believe that we are going to have Justice Kavanaugh on the bench for the foreseeable future. And all that said, the reporting about this needs to be airtight, and it just concerns me that this is in the opinion section, and it concerns me to see such a quick news cycle turn back into relitigating this thing, especially when we're coming into a presidential election. The reason I'm concerned about it is because I want to do the victims justice here, and I worry about the squishiness of the reporting around those victims. And I just... I think we would be better off getting a little further down the road and understanding. I I would like a comment from the FBI. You know what I mean? I'd like enough distance from this where we can really understand what the outside parameters of the FBI's investigation were instead of continuing really the same frenzy that we were in during his confirmation hearings. The reason I don't have those concerns as much, particularly from the comments from many of the presidential candidates, is because – Two of the people who have commented and called for his impeachment are on the Judiciary Committee, Amy Klobuchar and Kamala Harris. And so to hear these two women react immediately like that, you know, I I think because of their positions on the Judicial Committee, I should hope that they would not react just as presidential candidates. You know, you kind of hear from them and you feel from them that this is about their role in the Judiciary Committee and how the hearing went. I have no doubt they have more information about the limits on that FBI investigation. And so much of this reporting is confirming, I'm sure, some of their worst impressions or their knowledge from that time period and that process and how it was limited. And so that to me says, you know, no, I think that when I read, even if it is in the opinion section, and I don't know why the New York Times made that decision, but they do have corroborated evidence and they do, they did go and talk to, you know, seven people who remember hearing the story from her at the time. And what makes me so angry is that it feels like what happened is this would have been maybe the final nail in the coffin of that nomination had it come out in the time, but because of limitations placed on the FBI and, you know, the time limitations, basically they stalled until now. Well, it's not big enough or important enough to make an impact now on impeaching, but it most certainly would have been during the hearing. And that's what makes me mad. And I would assume that's what makes Kamala Harris and Amy Klobuchar mad. And, you know, again, it doesn't feel like justice to me. It really really doesn't. It's never going to feel like justice. And I personally think it's optimistic to think that this would have made a difference at the time. Mm. There was there was a lot of information at the time, right? And there wasn't a ton in this article that's really new. We knew a lot of this about him. And see, his, I feel like it is. I feel like there is stuff in this article that's new. In his testimony, I think on its own, seriously called into question his character and his mm-hmm. judicial temperament and the ability of him to do this job. And I think what happened is that the GOP decided this is a culture war they wanted to fight. And I think this is a culture war they'll be glad to fight again coming into an election season because now you're going to have the base excited about the Supreme Court again. Democratic side, you're going to get the, the base excited yeah. about the Supreme Court. And I don't want Deborah Ramirez or anyone else who suffered this kind of assault or reckless behavior to be a political prop for anyone. And I just worry that that's where we're headed. Instead of leaning into anything constructive, it's just going to be more of the same. Yeah, but is there a source to constructive if he's a lifetime appointing? I mean, that's the problem, right? Is we have two options, which is to leave him on the court for his lifetime. Well, that's not actually true. We can leave him on the court. We can impeach him, which are in traumatic processes for anybody, right? Like those are not great options. The other option Brett Kavanaugh, if you'd like to meet me at the mic, is for you to resign. You could resign and leave the court. That is another option, arguably one of the best options. 
you will never escape this cloud. Now, depending on what side of the aisle you think and how you feel about this issue, that might seem fair or not fair to you. But you won't. It's never going to happen for you. And so if anything you ever said about this being about the court and about being about the this branch of government and how important it is, maybe you could open your eyes and see the damage you're doing and we'll continue to do by continuing to sit on the Supreme Court. Or he might look at his friend, Justice Thomas, and decide that his vote still counts exactly the same as the other justices. I hate to be so negative about it, but like... Yeah, but Justice Thomas has also done damage to the Supreme Court. He absolutely has. And his credibility will always be an issue. He will mm-hmm. never escape that cloud either. And... He's still writing opinions and casting votes that are very consequential for our country. I mean, this is just a hard thing. And I hope if we can learn nothing else from it, we can learn that we should not rush the confirmation of a Supreme mm-hmm. Court justice. We, what, even if you think that all of the evidence is being manufactured, that every smear is from some conspiracy, let us take our time and not have questions about whether the FBI investigated all of that, about whether the committee heard every shred of evidence and had a full and fair opportunity to make an informed decision. So the last news story we wanted to tackle is the largest strike in over a decade at General Motors. Over 46,000 workers at 31 plants were told to walk off the job or stay home. There's a lot of issues. The Part of it is the closure or stalling of several factories across the country. The UAW wants higher pay. They want better benefits and more job security. And GM is trying to cut costs and the expected slowdown. We are going to tackle on Friday five things you need to know about the modern labor movement, including several strikes that are coming from the tech industry. And so the strike will definitely be a part of our show on Friday as we tackle the changes in the labor movement. Although this strike harkens, I think, to our more traditional understanding of the labor movement. The reporting I've read is that the workers are frustrated. They felt like they made sacrifices to get through the auto bailout and that the promises that were made have not been fulfilled, especially in the face of record profits coming from GM. And on the UAW side, there's an investigation by the DOJ into top leadership for corruption. And so the UAW wants to appear strong and on the side of the worker in the course of these negotiations. They also would like to use General Motors as a template Mm -hmm. for negotiations with Ford and Fiat Chrysler. So you have a lot of dynamics, as you always do, in major labor negotiations. And I'm looking forward to diving into all of this more next week after we sort of level set on where we are in terms of labor in the United States right now. Who would you like to compliment this week, Beth? I would like to compliment Adam Schiff, who continues to do, I think, really important work in overseeing the Trump administration. So Adam Schiff chairs the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, and he is not pleased that he is not getting the information from the Director of National Intelligence that statutes entitle him to. So on Friday, Adam Schiff sent a letter to acting DNI Joseph McGuire. You'll remember that Dan Coates resigned. Sue Gordon, who should have been in line for that mm-hmm. position, resigned as well, saying the president should have his team. So now we have acting DNI Joseph McGuire. And Adam Schiff says that the intelligence community's inspector general reviewed a whistleblower disclosure filed on August 12th, determined in accordance with the statutory process that it presented an urgent concern with reasonable grounds to believe it was credible. And according to the statutes, that should have come to Adam Schiff's committee next. The DNI is refusing to turn over this complaint. He consulted with the DOJ in deciding not to turn it over, which is not part of the statute. And Adam Schiff said, in fact, the statute explicitly exists to not have things like that going on where the executive branch is kind of hunkering down around itself. And the DNI says that this complaint concerns someone outside of the intelligence community and potentially confidential or privileged communications, which Adam Schiff says certainly sounds like this is about the president or someone in the White House, but the statute doesn't carve out exceptions. This is the process, and it should be in front of our committee, and here's a subpoena. And I want this in my hands by Tuesday, the date of this podcast, and if not, we will have a hearing on Thursday about it. And the letter also says that the inspector general did a really good job handling this, and he expects that there will be no retaliation against him or his team for doing that, and he doesn't want any kind of retaliation toward the whistleblower. So as I read this letter and thought about what Adam Schiff is doing, and he's taken all kinds of criticism for the way he's handled this role because it's a terrible time to have this job in Congress, I thought about Brexit and Parliament and the speaker that is resigning at the end of October and how he said, we degrade this parliament at our peril about how important it is that the legislature have oversight. 
And I think Adam Schiff is is a person who is saying, we degrade this Congress at our peril. And I really appreciate his work here. So I wanted to compliment the state legislators of New York and Michigan who have joined a growing list of states that are banning flavoring in vaping or and or e-cigarettes, whatever you prefer to call them. It does seem like we are learning more and more about some of the mysterious illnesses and deaths with regards to vaping have been linked to black market THC or black market vaping products. But I think that the the rush to regulation, while it might seem like an overreaction to these black market concerns, if you look at the the last several years of vaping, we're just catching up. We haven't been regulating at the level that we should have been from the beginning. So I'm glad to see this rush to pay attention to something. If you look at the statistics of the growth of vaping among teenagers, it is shocking. It is appalling. And it is scaring, scary, even if you do not take into account the recent reporting on illnesses and deaths. So I think all these these governments, both at the state and federal level, stepping up to pay attention to this issue and really try to figure out what's going on and to regulate in a way that protects teenagers and adults from these products is really, really good. Next up, we are going to talk about the third Democratic debate, what was discussed, how it was discussed, and where we think things go from here. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsu for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to d-i-p-s-e-a stories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit.
So we're going to dive into the Democratic debate, but if you prefer a more um, lightweight analysis set to perhaps Madonna tunes, and you have not yet followed us on Instagram, get on it. On Friday, we set all of our analysis to Madonna songs, and it was, I mean, Beth's song for Biden. So strong. It's so strong. I'm not even going to ruin it. You need to go to Instagram and follow us. It's in our highlights. So if you need additional analysis or more lightweight analysis, let us send you there. But Beth, you rewatched all three hours. So what did you come away with? Well, I actually changed some of my perceptions watching it a second time, which I think is not great for our country. (laughs) Yeah, because ain't nobody watching it a second time. Right. I think very few people watched it the first time compared (laughs) to the whole of the voting populace and maybe just me and some reporters watched it twice. I thought since we set our analysis on the candidates to Madonna music, which was my most favorite thing we've ever done, I think, and I want to play that game more often, we could look at issues, the order of the issues discussed today, and talk about where we think things shook out in that context. So this debate inexplicably to me, again, began with healthcare, even though I feel like we have traversed that ground in the first two debates. Everyone in the media is talking about how, well, like now that the field has narrowed, well, yes, only 10 people debated, but they were still all on the stage at one time. So mm-hmm. I didn't feel like the dynamic was markedly different. Well, you have all the front debates. runners together, though. That was the big that was the big narrative for this debate. You have Biden with Warren and Warren with Bernie and Bernie with Kamala, like everybody's up there together. I mean, I don't it makes sense to me that they're always going to start with health care. One, because it's a big source of disagreement among the candidates, too, because it is, you know, the bread and butter issue of the Democratic Party. It's, you know, you ask Nancy Pelosi and she's probably not wrong. That's how we gained the majority in 2018. It is. It affects every single American. It was interesting because you had candidates really interested in drawing out those distinctions. You had other candidates saying, look, Democrats want to protect health care rights for everyone and Republicans mm-hmm. don't. And that's all you need to worry about right now. And that was a shift in tactic, especially on the part of Senator Harris, who during the last debate seemed really interested in engaging the details of this, Medicare especially ball, as compared yeah. to Biden. But this time was much more of a don't worry about the weeds. Just know mm-hmm. that Donald Trump is a threat to your health care and everyone on this stage is not. Right. And I, I do think that that is a really great strategy. I don't have any problem with the continued discussion of health care policy because, look, on this podcast, we always say we need to have these conversations. We need to talk about what's important to us. We need to talk about our values. And that's what they're doing right now. That's what they're up there doing. They're up there talking about, well, everybody is paying too much in healthcare. True. Well, when I thought I thought the best points was Beto, who said, you know, you have these union workers who fought really, really hard for their health benefits, and now you're going to blow it up and say we're not going to have private health insurance anymore. Also, a really good point. And you have Bernie. I don't say this lightly. Making a really good point about. The problem isn't just private insurance versus public insurance is that private insurance is linked to employment. And so if we keep private insurance, you have people sticking with jobs they hate, stuck in low wage jobs because of the benefits or whatever, and and really pulling apart and digging into the idea that part of the big issue with private insurance is not just the cost, but it is the way it is linked to employment, which is something we've talked about a lot here on Pansy Politics. And so and they're all true. Right. All of these are true. And that's what we always say we want from candidates. We want you to tell to be to treat us like adults and say, well, this is how I see it. And this is how I see it. Don't don't make it simple. Don't pretend it's not complicated when it is. Healthcare in this country is complicated. And Obamacare made a lot of progress. And we are all grateful for Barack Obama. And that was another central theme and the progress that we made with the Affordable Care Act. And it's not perfect. And there's still a lot of problems. And we are now facing for the first time a drop in the insured rate in Americans. So, you know, I think all of that is true. And I know, you know, I'm one of those people. I want us to just present a united front and pretend like this is marketing, and which a lot of it is, and and push us to a point where we're just hammering home. We've got the best plan. Don't ask any questions. <laughs> just trust us. But I think that this is important. I think we really need to battle this out and talk about what's important and 
what's essential to us with healthcare and what are we willing to sacrifice and what are we not and what's the what's the biggest pain point when it comes to health insurance in America embedded in this discussion and something that i thought was really interesting and helpful about this particular debate on healthcare was a conversation between senator sanders and vice president biden about how you think about money and taxes mm-hmm. and the collective american populace because Vice President Biden is not wrong about the tremendous cost of Medicare for all. And Senator Sanders is not wrong that we are, as a as a citizenry, already bearing mm-hmm. excess cost because our system is so much less efficient and so much more expensive than countries on a single-payer system. Mm-hmm. And they both have important points that get to the heart of how mm-hmm. you as an American think about What is your money and what taxes represent to you and how willing you are to participate in a larger system? So are you willing to pay more in taxes to ultimately decrease the cost that you bear? Or is the choice that you feel you retain as part of a private system more important to you such that you're worth shouldering a little bit extra cost in that way? And I think breaking it down, I thought the conversation between Senator Sanders and Vice President Biden was one of the more honest discussions about that than than we've seen. And I thought that Senator Warren uncharacteristically obfuscated that a little bit more than the two of them did. And I just I appreciated getting right to the heart of that. Now, will the bulk of people watching this debate have that takeaway? I doubt it. But that if that continues to get teased out, I agree with you. That's really valuable. The idea that ooh, we can't talk about anything because we can't talk about healthcare. We can't talk about guns because we'll scare away moderates and, and Trump will win and you know, I don't think that's healthy. I don't think that's good. I think that treating every issue in this country as if the only thing that matters is the politics of it has gotten us to this point. We have to acknowledge that these issues impact our lives, not just who wins the next election. And who wins the next election impacts our lives and impacts these issues. It's messy. I get it. One of my favorite moments, because it acknowledged the the humanness and the difficulty and the complicated nature of these conversations on this particular forum, was when Pete Buttigieg was like, this is what the people don't want. They don't want us up here bickering with each other. And Julian Castro being like, sorry, buddy, that's what elections are about. You know, it's about contrasting. It's about finding the differences and poking at those and working out the policy differences. And I love that moment, not because I totally agree with one of them or the other, just because I thought it exposed the humanness of what we're dealing with right now, which is we have a lot of big issues that we have to work out. We have some fundamental disagreements about American values. And to try to force that into the box of electoral politics and say all that matters is who's win, who will win and who will lose is so short-sighted and so deliberately ignoring the impact of everything we're talking about, the importance of everything we're talking about, and trying to do the thing that we hate, which is just horse race, horse race, horse race. And those moments are really helpful because I thought they both had a good point. Mm-hmm. I think both of them were right. Yeah. And I also think that style points matter a lot when you're talking about the executive, because yeah. the reality is whatever is on the website for each of these people as their health care plan, they can do it. It's mm-hmm. Congress that has to do it. They have to go and make the case that this can be done. They have to be willing to negotiate with other human beings. We're going to get some combination of ideas, no matter who wins this election, because that's what our process demands. Mm -hmm. And so seeing how they think about this and how they express themselves is much more relevant to the job of the executive than the minutiae of their plans. And that's where I think Cory Booker is emerging as uniquely talented because he's able to do both of those things. I feel like Cory Booker is able to be the Buttigieg figure who says, let's focus on our commonality. Let's respect the fact that Americans are tired of us bickering with one another. And also, let's take a really firm stand on what we believe is right. Let's not mince words about our distinctions. And I think he is, while it's never like a show-stopping moment from him, I feel like consistently debate over debate, he is the person that combines both of those sensibilities really effectively. I think that what bothers me about that, though, is everybody says that. Everybody says, you know, it's really about how they manage and how in their style and their approach, but then we'll disqualify them over something over a policy position as if you're checking boxes off the website. When we know that's not, you know, the, the, the narrative of 
well, Republicans are going to win because Beto talked about a mandatory buyback or Republicans are going to win because Elizabeth Warren wants to blow up the private insurance market. There's no acknowledgement within that that they don't just go in and wave a magic wand. And do we really believe that? Do we really believe that voters disqualify based on policy positions or do we believe that voters react to presentation and personality and personal story as well as these bread and butter issues that affect them every day. You know, I don't think there's one answer, but the media narrative of, well, Beto talked about AR-15, so it was a gift to the Republicans, really bugs me because I don't necessarily think that's how people vote. I don't think people voted for Donald Trump because of the wall. I think they are, you know, tied together in ways that are hard to piece apart, but I don't know if anybody makes a decision based on positions like that, even if they seem like they're moving to the left or to the right. Race came up a couple of times, first in connection with criminal justice reform and second in connection with education. And then it came up, you know, throughout the conversation in a variety of ways. This was one of the few times that I found myself grateful for Twitter Mm -hmm. because I missed something important that Vice President Biden said during this debate. And it has been very eloquently expanded on on Twitter. And I'm so glad In an exchange about reparations and comments that the former vice president has made historically about not feeling that he's responsible for what happened 300 years ago, he talked about education of African-American families in ways that were really offensive to that population of people and to all of us, that instead of worrying about the legacy of slavery – Mm-hmm. We have parents who need social workers to help them parent their children. Mm-hmm. That studies that have been discounted in several important respects show that kids from black families hear fewer words than white kids and that we need to play the record player for them so that they can right, hear more words. Player. And the media narrative did exactly what my mind did, which is to say, a record player? <laughs> did mm-hmm. you almost say phonograph there? Like, what's going on? And thinking more about, Julian Castro and the the debate the two of them had about his age. And I missed the really important angle of how this really shows him thinking about communities of color. And I think that that's another opportunity to step back and realize like, wow, I really center my own experiences. And in some ways, I'm only capable of doing that as, you know, try to learn and increase my capacity all the time. But I'm so happy that there are voices out there writing this from the more important angle, because that is the more important angle. Mm -hmm. I don't understand the narrative coming out from the media that, you know, Joe Biden survived. He didn't do any damage. He brought a little more energy, explained himself better. I I must have been watching a different debate. Every time he opened his mouth, I thought he was confusing. I thought that he was all over the place. I thought that answer was atrocious on many levels. The idea that we would run a man who answers questions about reparations against the racist that is Donald Trump is insane to me. I had a very, very visceral reaction to that question. He, you know, he has not gotten any better at addressing his truly problematic issues in his past and in his history and in his voting rights with race. And we are going to come up against, look, Hillary Clinton couldn't go after Donald Trump over his offensive treatment of women because of her husband's past. And we're going to put forward a candidate that can't go after Donald Trump on race because of his own issues with statements about reparations and busing and his own history with Dixiecrats. Like, really? Really? Like, I just, I'm at a loss. I don't understand why we are still treating him as the front runner. I don't care what the poll says. Like if we're talking about that, you know, this is what he says. This race is about values. Well, a huge issue right now is race and racial justice and our approach to our values as Americans when we talk about black and brown people and these huge, massive issues in his past and the fact that he doesn't seem to have any ability to address them is really concerning to me. I would like to see some cross tabs on people who support Vice President Biden and people who are watching the debates, Mm -hmm. because I do think we're still in a space where a lot of the polling is not reflective of the level of engagement people have in the race. I thought that Vice President Biden was strongest on trade of all of the discussion. I thought that he displayed 
a little bit clearer understanding of foreign policy than others on the stage. I thought the foreign policy section in general was a weak spot. I think it continues to be a weak spot for this field. I thought the questions were answered with a stunning lack of clarity, and I was troubled by that. But I do think Vice President Biden is meandering in all Mm. of his answers. And if you think about the fact that no single human being can be everything a president needs to be, it is too much for any one person. So what we really have to think about is what do we need in a president right now? What are the qualifications or skills of a president that we want to prioritize here today in 2020 after four years of Donald Trump? I don't think Vice President Biden checks those boxes because of his inability to speak with clarity Mm. on issues like race and to show some humility and some evolution and some growth on those issues. If he did that, he would be extremely compelling because a model of a leader who's able to say, hey, both on race and on gender, I got things wrong in my past. I'm working on them. I'm working on them without any kind of self-deprecation about it or trying to make it funny or being a little bit resentful of what's being asked of me. I'm just working on it. Mm -hmm. That would be a fantastic model for America. He's not doing that. No. So foreign policy came up. Venezuela came up. There was a reference to a 21st century Marshall Plan. I'm going to talk about what a Marshall Plan is on Twitter this week so that we can review the history of that a little bit. Climate came up. There was an Awesome question from mm-hmm. I think it was Jorge Ramos, who was um, who came to play. He was so good. I'm willing to let him moderate all the debates moving forward because he was like he did not he did not have many cares left. It was amazing. I thought this question was so good. Should our foreign policy be based around the principle of climate change? And Senator, that question was directed to Elizabeth Warren. Senator Warren responded by talking about her embrace of Jay Inslee's plan and how important climate change is. I want somebody to connect those dots the way that question connects those dots. How do we think about a bombing of Iraq on an island where ISIS has a stronghold in light of climate change? How do we think about 19 impacts on an oil field and at an oil factory in light of climate change? That's a great, important question. And it didn't get fleshed out, but I was here for it. I thought it was fantastic. I I don't understand the opposition to doing really focused debates. I really want a climate change debate. I think that would be so helpful. I'm not going to watch all six hours of the town hall. So I would much prefer a climate change debate that really all those centers, every question, health care, disaster relief, foreign policy, energy policy, trade policy under the umbrella of climate change. I agree with that. I think more focused debates would be a good way. I I like the idea of sort of symposium style analysis on particular issues. I think that would help sort out a lot of these conversations. And you have a field that's capable of it. I mean, part of what you see here is that these candidates can go there. They just have to be pressed to go there because in the context of a general debate, when many of them still feel like they're introducing themselves to the voting public, they're going to stick to kind of the the impact points. So can we talk about Andrew Yang for a second? And his in advance of the debate, his team made the decision to like tease that he was going to do something that had never been done before. And then in his opening statement, he says, I'm for this freedom dividend, $1,000 a month to families in the United States. And guess what, everybody? Ten lucky families are going to win the freedom dividend from me for the next year to kind of prove out this point. He got my email address and apparently 450,000 Americans email addresses. That's what the campaign is saying, that they um, received signups after the debate. Well, that's not surprising at all, right? Mm -hmm. But what I think is too bad and... This came up in a really excellent piece about trust that I'll link in the show notes from The New Yorker, is that the whole principle underlying universal basic income, which is what the freedom dividend is by his own admission. He says the freedom dividend poll tests better than UBI. So that's Mm -hmm. why we're calling it that. But that's what it is. So the whole premise of it is if everyone gets it, it fundamentally Mm -hmm. changes the economy. It is not about individual impact. He likes to tell those stories, and they're good stories. I understand why. And I'm happy for the 10 families that get $1,000 a month from Andrew Yang. But the real philosophy is about this has to be pervasive in our culture in order for it to be worth doing. 
Well, I still think it's positive, though, for him to be able, you know, every politician needs those stories. I talked to so-and-so, and this is the impact of so-and-so. And so to, to keep talking about the Freedom Dividend in a way that is very abstract, either through the lens of Alaska or the lens of studies and statistics, is not going to get him there. He needs personal impact stories to be able to continue to talk about this on the trail and to be continue to talk about it with the media. So I totally understand why, he, why he's doing this. I don't know if the debate was the best format to, like, sort of reveal it in this game show-esque way. But the more people that he can tell these stories about, you know, he tells the story about the guy who bought the guitar and now he's playing, who was caring for his grandmother. And I mean, I think the more stories like that, that he can gather and say, this is what this means. This is what it can mean in your life. So I can talk about studies and statistics in Alaska, but this is, let me tell you the story of this person whose life looks an awful lot like you, Mr. Voter. And this is how it changed his life when we were be able to bring in this freedom dividend and takes it out of the sort of abstract policy debate and discussion that it's been in and pulls it down to the ground so people can really start to think about, hmm, what does that really mean? I think it's really positive. I think he is doing whether or not Andrew Yang becomes the candidate, and I'm not willing to count him out or pretend like he's a joke because I do not believe that he is. He is doing such, we talk a lot on this podcast about the public service of campaigns, and he is doing a massive public service and moving this issue, which I think is important and could have real impact in America and around the world. And in all these areas that we're talking about, climate change, the economy, trade, healthcare, education, gender equality, I think that he is pushing that light years into the future. Had we not had a presidential candidate who took up this mantle, I think it would be staying in the realm of white papers and it would be staying in the realm of sort of abstract ideas that nobody understands. And he is really he's doing the work, man. I agree with that. I like his democracy dollars idea also. When he was asked briefly about money and politics, he talked about this concept of what is basically public mm-hmm. funding, but public funding put in the hands of the people by allocating to each of us democracy dollars that we could donate, donate in air quotes, to candidates as we see fit. I think that's innovative. I think that is in the spirit of democracy. I like mm-hmm. it a lot. Yeah, I like it. And I wish it didn't have the corny name. I mean, this is kind of a, a difficult. I'm never, mad. I'm never mad at alliteration. I'm just not. It's a difficult spot that he's in because in order to stand out, he's doing these gimmicky things, which subsequently undermine him as a serious candidate. It's almost like the media won't allow him a good a good way forward. And so he's doing the best he can. I'll tell you another person that it struck me on the second watching of the debate was more serious than I had given her credit for, Senator Klobuchar. Because I, the first time I watched it, I was really annoyed with the planned zingers, the little turns of phrase that you could tell were rehearsed with her team beforehand that were intended to be picked up by newspapers. What she says in between those is so substantive. You can tell she is a very smart person, a really good legislator, a really good committee member, a thoughtful prosecutor, you know, a ton of good qualities. I'm still upset about the stories about how she has treated staff. And for me, that is still an an obstacle that I can't get over. But she was much better in this debate than I thought on the first viewing. And for me, the, the barrier was kind of the the jokiness that was planned into her remarks. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, 
It could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Remember how I said it's really important to have these conversations that are substantive and that we're really taking apart these debates. (laughs) Uh, Let me talk out the other side of my mouth and say, I get I know she says those things. It's not going to get her there. Talking about Bill she co-sponsored is not going to move the needle for her, period. And zingers aren't going to move the needle either. That's not what you're missing. That's not what you're missing. That what you're missing is a narrative about who you are, because before you ran for president, the narrative became that you're the boss from hell. And it's going to be a big, big lift to create a moment, to have media, to do anything that will shift that to give people another story. You have that moment where you come out onto the stage and your story is created. And that was yours because of choices you've made in your past as a boss. Let's just be honest about it. And so that's a big lift. And I think saying, you know, being the like, first of all, being the work hard senator with the bills with love is a little bit occupied by Elizabeth Warren. And so to you're going to have to find something else. It's not going to work for you, no matter how good your answers are in the debate, even if they're peppered with lots of zingers. I just don't think it's going to do it. So, Sarah, did this debate change anything for you? Um, No, I feel much more. I feel a lot more warmth towards Beto. He's still not my preferred candidate, but I feel like I feel about him like I feel like about Andrew Yang. Like I'm just so deeply appreciative of the ways in which they are pushing certain issues forward. The fact that Beto was like, yeah, we are going to take your AR-15s was just I mean, my 10 year old was like, that's a great speech. I don't know if he should be president, but everybody should remember that speech. And I could not agree more with my 10 year old. I think that that was really good. I felt like it did. This debate did a lot more of instead of just let's watch you bicker. And again, maybe this was the work of the moderators who did a really beautiful job of really giving them time and capacity to to dig into that in a way that I think is helpful for the voters. So I, I think that for that reason, the debate was really good. And I do feel a lot. Uh, I felt a lot of good vibes towards Andrew Yang and towards Cory Booker and towards Beto. But I'm still pretty firmly in Elizabeth Warren's camp, who somehow manages to go through all these debates as a major front runner without being attacked. And I wish, I mean, like every time the media talks about it, I'm like, Shh, you're going to miss up her strategy. Like, I don't know how she's doing it, but it's working really well. I agree. I thought this debate was much more effectively moderated. I did not think George Stephanopoulos was good in that opening segment. I thought yeah. I could do a better job at this from my bed. But he really turned it. But but Jorge Ramos, I thought, was excellent. I didn't like some of the Lindsay James questions only because they kind of positioned her as the 
let me drag out this statement from your past and make you really feel on the hot seat. And I don't think debates are a great place for that. I don't know. I was ready for the prosecutor questions for Kamala Harris and Amy Klobuchar. I thought those were good. And she was like being like, hey, hi, you have this problem. You want to talk about it? Like, I thought it was kind of intense. I thought she was an, an excellent questioner. I would rather her... I would rather see her do that in an interview one-on-one with those people Mm -hmm. so she could follow up more and kind of really get to the depths of that. I appreciated Beto's clarity. I also appreciated Senator Booker's annoyance with Beto for, like, waking up to the gun problem because it Mm -hmm. hit his community. And I loved it when Senator Booker talked about how we need a more courageous empathy where we Mm -hmm. aren't having to wait for this to personally affect us before we're ready to step up and do something. So for me, Senator Booker is still my preference. I continue to think that Mayor Buttigieg has some important things to say. I, I think he's probably not quite ready to, the, to do this job, but I think he has important things to contribute to the debate. I am sad that Senator Harris is falling out of my front runner bucket, but the question was directly put to her, is it constitutional to deal with guns by executive order? And she didn't address the question. And I have that concern about Mm -hmm. her. And so she's kind of lost some ground with me. I still really admire her presentation and the way she carries herself. And I think she looks and feels like a leader in a way that I think is important and want right now. I desperately want to be excited about a woman candidate. But uh, right now, Senator Booker is it for me. Beth, what do you think about outside politics? I think we should share today a previously (laughs) under-discussed And critically important aspect of why our partnership works, which is our breakfast strategy. So let me we were trying to keep it light because there was so much news. But let me just unpack this like in a therapy session. Breakfast is very important to me. I was an only child and my mother worked. And so I ate every breakfast like by myself, probably like a warmed up pop tart. I felt like I was missing this leave it to beaver breakfast that was presented to me as like the way to start your day. And so I spend my entire adult life trying to create what I call special breakfast every chance I get. And like, if we were in a partnership where you were like, I don't really like breakfast or like breakfast is not, it's just, I don't care about breakfast. I'm going to skip it. I'm not hungry. Like it would be a strain. It would be a strain. No, we're, we're very dedicated breakfast eaters in my house. Now mm-hmm. we are not special breakfast eaters, except on the weekends. On the weekends, we are all about breakfast. During- I mean, I, but I do, I, I agree with that. I, I re- like the, the weekend special breakfast to me is non-negotiable. However, if I'm given the opportunity to create a special breakfast on a weekday, um, I'm going to take it. Well, someone else preparing breakfast is always oh, a beautiful yes. thing. Preparing special breakfast is wonderful. So, you know, we travel a lot. Travel is both fun and rough. And so to have a nice breakfast is something I always really look forward to in our travels. And what's been so nice is that Sarah and I share a philosophy about travel breakfast. That's just so good. It's so good. I think we also share husbands who um, are judgy about our breakfast menu choices and don't understand that perhaps we do need both a savory and sweet option at every special breakfast. My husband is like, you do not need to order both of those things. And I'm like, mm, but I got to have both. I got, you cannot, you cannot present me with a breakfast menu with all these beautiful, both savory and sweet options and expect me to choose one. It's unacceptable. I don't feel too much judgment from Chad on this, but what I love about when we're at breakfast together is that we will share those options. So we will order a savory together Mm -hmm. and a sweet together so that we have just the right amount of everything. Mm -hmm. If there are two savory things we're interested in, we'll get those and share them so that we can taste more than one thing. Chad and I aren't big sharers of our meals, and that is just so beautiful to me that we can say – Because when you share with a man, it's like a race. That's why. Let's have breakfast dessert. I Mm -hmm. just think breakfast dessert is why fancy politics works. I mean, my husband is not a breakfast eater. It is amazing that we are still married. Truly. He does make the best pancakes on planet Earth, which seems to have been the glue that has held us together. Um, but I've been I've used all that up. I've used up all my my breakfast sort of get out of jail free cards on him. I would not have any left if you were like, well, I just want to eat this savory option by myself. So you just get whatever you want. Like that would be awful. It would be awful. So often we get one savory, one sweet, and we will either share them or sometimes we'll both get a savory and we'll get the sweet for dessert and share it. But like, it just, it's beautiful. It is beautiful. We hope that you are having a beautiful Tuesday. On the Nightly Nuance this week, you're going to learn lots of things. On Monday, we talked about a Supreme Court decision on asylum. 
Tuesday. We're talking about California's new law on vaccinations. Who knows what the rest of the week will hold for us, but come check out The Nightly Nuance on Patreon, patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. We'll be back here Friday for five things you need to know about the modern labor movement. You will not want to miss it. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Our executive producers are Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, David McWilliams, Joshua Allen, Linda Rucker, Martha Bernatsky, Melanie Cravey, and Tiffany Hassler. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.